Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's For All You Kids Out There. Um, I am your host, Jarrett Seidler. I am in for Jeffrey this week, as Jeffrey had a baby girl last week. Um, Evelyn Rose Paternostro, six pounds, nine ounces. Uh, Congratulations to Jeffrey and Jess. Um, So... We think he might be back next week. I, like, had to elbow him out of the podcast this week and, like, tell him to go spend time with his newborn. So, um, but sitting in for Jeffrey this week is Craig Goldstein, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. Craig, how you doing? I'm doing okay. It's a slightly, I have a slightly less uh, old, or slightly more old new, newborn, I should say. Slightly less fresh. How's Charlie doing? Uh, Charlie's doing well. Okay, this is yeah. episode 229, um, I think I'm supposed to do that at the beginning of the third half. Somehow, despite having done this intro like 250 times with Jeffrey, including all the unnumbered episodes, I still don't actually know what all of it is, so we'll be winging it a little bit this week, but um, thank you for sitting in, Craig. And, yeah, it's um, my pleasure. We have a whole lot of stuff to discuss in the nine days or so since Jeffrey and I last recorded. Um, baseball is sort of back. Um, summer camp started last week, right? And it's a giant mess, and we'll talk about <laughs> all that stuff later. But first, we should probably, since this is a Mets adjacent baseball prospectus podcast, I got that one right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Mets sixty man roster. Yeah, let's do it. They, and in there, they also, since we recorded, like, made a bunch of extremely Metsy free agent signings. <laughs> um, the headline names being Melky Cabrera and Jared Hughes. I didn't but, mind Hughes that much, honestly. So this is like, the, we talked about this with Brad Brock when they re-signed Brad Brock for a rather small contract. Like, these guys are perfectly fine major league middle relievers, and they even have some upside. But teams have generally been shying away from, like, locking those, like, middle relief spots into guys that don't have options that are on major league contracts, and both Hughes and Brock fit into that. They, like, can't set them down for a fresh arm. Uh, If they're performing badly, they have to be DFA'd instead of optioned. And the Mets, you know, obviously they were... They were, Major League Baseball removed the 13-pitcher maximum, and for at least the first month of the season, there's going to be more than 26 players on the roster. But the Mets, like, still don't have a lot of optionable arms. Um, obviously, they're not optioning Diaz or Lugo, and they have, on their roster resource projected bullpen, beyond Diaz and Lugo, they have five relief pitchers who are either out of options or can't be optioned because of service time. Right. And that doesn't even include 
Jacob Rame, who's on the forty man and out of options. So, 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 but the, I mean, so my question on that is, like, is that as much of a problem with with these expanded rosters? And also, like, if you need to get rid of a, a Brad Brock or a Jared Hughes, are you upset about it? I don't think so. I don't. The Mets tend to have a really hard time getting off a of guaranteed money. And yeah. I know Brock's only getting around a million, and Hughes is getting less than that, and it's actually a third of that because these are the prorated salaries. I still haven't gotten myself right. out of like the, you know, Jared Hughes isn't actually making seven hundred thousand; he's actually making like two hundred and change. So, right. I, right. I so guess... that's, that like lends some credence to. I mean, I guess I don't mind the the willingness to to take on these guys or to give them a quote unquote guarantee because if, I mean, it is guaranteed, but like it's, yeah. you're, it's significantly less yeah. um, than you otherwise would. Yeah. I don't know that, that didn't bother me that much. And I, you know, it wouldn't shock me either. If for example, Erasmo Ramirez was one of those very Metsy type guys to bring in. Yeah. Um, like if he ends up making it, like he, he's not on the roster right now, but oh he, yeah. He could be. Yeah, he's probably in a better battle with, like, Walker and Lockett for, like, that last bulk guy spot. But right. he could easily make it over, like, Paul Seawald or Daniel Zamora or Raim or Drew Smith. Or, and my guess is that you could, if they if they want to... Right, so any of those guys you mentioned except for, for Lockett can be optioned. But, they, yeah. I mean, they could probably, especially when the, the roster crunch comes and, like, these teams are, are setting their rosters... Um, you know, before the season, Lockett probably gets through waivers. I mean, if they need to. Yeah. They brought a whole bunch of dudes in. Hughes was the only one that got a major league contract. And Jared Hughes has been a mostly good ground ball specialist middle reliever for a while. He didn't have a great year last year. He is, I think he's 35. I think he just turned 35. Um, so he might just be cooked, but as major league minimum, slightly above major league minimum signings go, it's fine. Like if they signed him to this contract in January, I don't think anybody would have batted an eye. It's a little weird for him to have not gotten a major league contract all off season and then suddenly get him when things open back up. Uh, yeah, I, that is a little odd. But you know, like I, like you said, like it's it, he he kept his. Ground ball rate around sixty last year. It had previously been a little bit higher than that. Um, it seemed like he really just got hit by the home run bug, which you could argue yeah. you should expect to to continue seeing. But it wasn't that bad the year you know the year before when there was you know the balls were still flying uh, somewhat substantially, and that includes twenty seventeen as well. So um, I don't know. I was scrolling to see if his velocity dropped off or anything, but it's it's mostly been the same it's you know it was 94 and a half it dropped off in 2018 but his results didn't it dropped about a mile and he yeah. was still in 93 last year so and again he's probably better than paul seawald yeah if he's you know the same or a little bit better and it's never bad to have those type more of those types of guys in they also signed a boatload of nris one of whom might be good and most of whom almost certainly aren't the one that might be good is fellow 35-year-old Melky Cabrera, who has roughly continued to be Melky Cabrera in his decline phase. Yeah, he's I mean, he's almost 36. I, yeah. You know, he, he is someone who, 
as long, I, I think Jeff tweeted about this honestly, but it was I, I think it was the the dead on accurate take, which is that if you don't overuse him, he's fine, right? Like he's a good contact guy. If you want to use him, look, expanded rosters, uh, pinch hitting, something like that. Like that's that's probably fine. Maybe a Sunday outfielder or something, you know, or DH type of thing. Uh, but the problem is that given it's the Mets, they'll they'll find a way to like DH him twice a week. Yeah, and that's gonna that's that's not good. Because yeah. it's really just it's just batting average right now. You're getting contact, and there's there's not much power. There's no on base. It's very easy to see him like cutting into like Brandon Nimmo's playing time against lefties or something. Just which like... would be just, <laughs> I mean, beyond frustrating. Right, but their outfield depth is so bad that when these and out when these rosters were initially announced before they added some NRIs and added some more of their own guys on renegotiated deals like Ryan Cordell and Jared Parker. Like, mm-hmm. the only reserve outfielder in camp was Janishwe Fargus, who has never played in the majors league, major so, leagues and is and best prob- known for being really fast. I was going to say, he probably shouldn't, but is he someone you think gets a chance as, like, a speed guy for these new extra inning yeah, situations? I, I think there's a chance. Um, you know, certainly... He's, like, a guy that would have been, like, an interesting September guy in past years. Like, Mm -hmm. way past years before teams started carrying 13 pitchers. And he was having a big spring training and isn't, like, completely useless with the bat. Like, as quad A speed guys go, he's, like, got more offensive utility than, like, Terrence Gore, probably. Uh, He's also not as fast as Terrence Gore, but... Yeah, I could see him making a 30... I, you know, I almost think, like, him and Melky and might be in, like, a battle for one roster spot that might not even exist if they end up carrying 15 or 16 pitchers. Right. Well, and the other thing with Fargus is he's... And, and I apologize if you said that. He's Rule 5, right? Um, No, he's just an NRI. Oh, he's, he's just certain, an NRI. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you're looking at the options column on roster resources. Yeah, he's Rule 5 right. eligible. Oh, I got you. Yeah. I got you. So, he's not... I, just, I also remembered him as a Giants guy. Yeah. So, I was, wasn't was sure if that's how that happened. They also brought in... Breathing deeply. Um, Gordon Beckham. <laughs> which is a choice that they made. I mean, and, when they announced Melky and Beckham back-to-back, it was a special moment. Yeah. And... I assume he's just in camp as, like, a break glass in case of emergency guy. But Gordon Beckham hasn't been a good major leaguer in literally a decade. Right. And there's nothing Gordon Beckham can do that Luis Guillerme can't do better, and he's already (laughs) around. And is there anything Gordon... Like, if you put Andres Jimenez in the majors, would he do anything worse than Gordon Beckham at this point? Certainly a better defender. Right. Right. I mean, there's, it's definitely possible, like, in a in a 60-game sample, Gordon Beckham has the edge on on Jimenez as a as a hitter. Yeah. But, like, it's not much of one if, right. if you're going to assume that. So, whatever. They've got mid-30s Gordon Beckham, and they also signed Hunter Strickland. And... <laughs> I mean, exciting for the Phillies, you know, the, the Strickland-Harper uh, matchup yeah. at some point. Do you think Hunter Strickland makes his roster? 
I think there's a good chance. I mean, is look, we we I I was talking positively about Jared Hughes. Is he? I don't think Strickland is that bad. Like he's definitely limited, but he's not. He's not that bad, right? What would Wilmer Flores' triple slash line be if he could only hit against Hunter Strickland? Because all he would get is dick high fastballs. Because that's all yeah. Hunter I mean, I say that he's he's had, he had a five five and a half ERA last year. It was pretty yeah. bad, um, but you know he still throws hard. Like he's look. I I don't know if we're still in the mindset that we were in, however long ago it was, that relievers, especially in a small sample, are just a crapshoot, but like he throws hard enough that in a 60 game season, uh, you're going to get what? 25 innings out of him. Probably. Yeah. Um, could he be good for 25 innings? Uh, Yeah. He throws like 97. He's fine. 25 innings is basically Voros's law territory here. Right. So, and, and I don't mean that to, but like, he's also not like uniquely untalented, right? Like he's not garbage. Like he's just not good. But he, again, yeah, he again, throws ninety six. I mean, it's not. It's straight. It's not good. The Mets have kept Ty Bashler on their forty man for like four years now, and he's basically the same pitcher. Yeah. So I mean, like I, again, like could he could he outpitch? I mean, do you start a season with him on the roster and and keep you know maybe you option Seawald and or or Zamora or you know someone who has options and isn't a lock to be better or like, you know, significantly more talented. I, that's a way to go through life. And like, again, if you, if you DFA and, you know, put Strickland on waivers, do you care? Probably not. Yeah. Like, it's just, he's kind of there. They also re-signed a bunch of the guys that they had in camp to deals that don't have opt-outs and didn't have incentives, minor league deals. So like Ryan Cordell, Jarrett Parker, Jason Shreve, uh, Erasmo Ramirez, who you previously mentioned. And given the fact that we've just mentioned, like, 15 fringe veteran NRIs that are in camp, Max Moroff, um, Eduardo Nunez, Matt Adams, Rene Rivera, they did not bring a lot of their prospects to camp. They did. And, I mean, they were one of the few that I feel like most teams brought, I don't know, somewhere in in the range of five guys. Yeah. Um but yeah, no, they they definitely I mean, and I don't does that say anything to you about like their plans or just that like they I don't know. So the two teams that were no I I'm writing about this over the next couple of weeks uh for BP, my the NL East preview which I did first cuz I was kind of lazy and could do that one without really looking anything up. Um is going up probably tomorrow or Tuesday. You might actually know the answer to that. Um, probably whenever Nick finishes editing it, because it's like 5,200 words. Um, but in the initial looks at the rosters, the two teams that were really prospect light were the Mets and the Orioles. And I saw <laughs> quotes from both Van Wagenen and Elias that indicated that they just like physically didn't really have space yet, because they're still working on their satellite well, places and they kind of want to focus on the major leaguers while they could only bring in you know well, the 48 Orioles, or 50 guys how many guys are on the Mets because the Orioles was pretty low right it was like in the 40s yeah the Mets are I think um in the low 50s uh, they're okay. not quite so as they low. have room to do yeah 
They, yeah. they, they're not like where the Phillies are. I think the Phillies are at like 59 or something. And like the that. Nationals were at 60 before yeah. opt-outs. I think they're actually back up to 60 because I think Cavalli was the 60. Oh, right, right, right. Last night. Uh, so I... they But Brody also indicated that he was likely to only add higher-level prospects that could contribute this season. So they might add, you know, I, this is not something he said, but they might add, like, a Franklin Colome or a Thomas Zipaki, but not a Brett Beatty or a Ronnie Mauricio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you look at it, and they only have two other top ten prospects here. Jimenez, who played in A last year and is on the 40-man, and David Peterson, who's probably something like their sixth or seventh starter. Right. And they just, like, they didn't bring anybody. They had four prospects that made the BP Top 20 that are already on the 40-man that they didn't bring. Colome, Zapucky, Steven Gonsalves, who pitched in the majors last year, and Jordan Humphreys. Those guys are all still at home. And that was... Most teams brought everyone healthy on the 40. Uh, the Phillies actually did not. The Phillies did not bring Adonis Medina or Christopher Sanchez. The Phillies were actually somewhat close to this, although they brought a couple more guys. And like that, and like the Mets, uh, I kind of think they're going to add like Bryson Stott a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Mets kind of didn't seem to most teams brought some guys just for player development purposes and the Mets did not bring anybody who does not have a pretty significant chance to play in the majors this year um, outside of Patrick Mazeka who is there because they need an extra catcher yeah I mean again like I do you think that says something about the way they're approaching the season I mean they kind of approach every season like this is this could be our year but I, I think so. I also think... So I've been kind of kicking this around, and I know I've talked to you about this, and I've talked to a few other people about this. I don't know how I feel about teams bringing guys like Robert Poisson and Tyler Soderstrom and Blake Walston that just like clearly aren't going to play in the majors this year just for player development purposes in the middle of a literal deadly pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I so I'm of two minds on it. I mean, I think... I, I don't mind it in and of itself. I think what bothers me, uh, and, and I talked to Ginny about this because I, you know, she she had mentioned it. And she does a lot of our transaction analysis, so she was keeping an eye on it. But like the the using of the roster space for this does not bother me, right? The the fact that like okay, you d- dedicate five or seven or eight spots out of sixty uh, to these prospects and their development. That's fine because, frankly, I think if you're approaching using 50 people in a 60 game season, like we're so far gone, and and it's not gonna like the season's not gonna happen, right? Like it would shut down. Mm, um, I, don't I would know hope about that one. Well, <laughs> they sure seem like they're they're well. They might. I mean, they to... might barrel ahead, but if yeah. that's the case, I really don't think like the difference between 50, using 52 guys yeah. and 60 is is like that level of, of where you are in the depth chart is probably not making or breaking your season at that point. Um, what bothers me, and, and we talked about this, is uh, the money, right? Like these guys are still on their, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's the universe, like the, it, it's I, the I, suspended rate. It's it's the uh, the rate that they get in spring training, the $400 a week. 
Um, they're, they're not, as it turns out. Oh, they, is that right? Players in minor league camps are making their AAA UPC rate, which for players... That not are always that bad. Not on the 40-man and have not reached minor league free agency is, for most teams, $502 a week. So it's actually not much more, but it's... No, it's not. Um, so over the course of the season, um, let's say Kevin Smith, who's on a rookie deal... Um, so he's still on his draft deal, isn't on the 40-man roster, and isn't like terribly likely to get called up. Uh, he rates to make about $4,600 a season. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's bad. That's not, and and that's to not. me, and then to me, the question is, like, is that worth the risk to the player? You know, and that's one thing for... Maybe it's one thing for Kevin Smith, who's going to be in New York, which has stabilized for now. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Blake Walston. He's going to be in Phoenix. Not where you'd want to be. And and probably not where you'd want to be for a few thousand dollars. Now, obviously, I don't want to ignore that a few thousand dollars is meaningful, but uh, for for people. But you know, when your health is on the line, and Walston was a first rounder, it's not you know he he ostensibly doesn't need that money uh, quite the same as some other people might. Um, so so having him come in for developmental purposes, I mean, I get it. I understand that they want these guys to not lose a full year of development to have, you know, access to major league or close to it, uh, coaches, that kind of thing. Um, that concept kind of in theory doesn't bother me, but again, doing it without, I, I, and I, you know, I guess the other part is I don't know how, how much leeway these minor leaguers, these prospects have in saying, I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, and, and I assume it varies by team, but assuming that they, they don't have much leeway, uh, that's, you know, it's deeply uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think I'm a little more concerned about you are than you are of just the idea of bringing these guys into, you know, a 30 to 35 man kind of player situation. And at that point, if you're going to bring guys in for player development, why not just do like some type of, you know, prospect summer league or whatever, where you could even segregate teams out in that kind of situation. And there would be less, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have to be in the home market. You could find the safest market and you wouldn't necessarily Mm. have to bend the calendar to the needs of the major league team, which they're going to have to do now. So I, I just, it seems like it's a cross purposes. I get it. I don't think it's, I think the money here is a slam dunk. Like, that's a morally bankrupt decision. Right, right. Um, I agree with that. I don't think bringing players... I don't think, like, bringing Robert Poisson in is necessarily a morally bankrupt decision. I think it's kind of in the middle, but it did kind of bother me a little I, bit. I think it's fine to raise an eyebrow and to and to find it questionable and to question it. I, I guess my thought is, from a, like, from a roster-building aspect, like, do I care? I, you know... As I said, if you can replace the entire 26-man roster and still be, you know, at your 53rd player the next time you need someone. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. th- there's definitely enough room in 60, with 60 players. I mean, I think what I said to you was the Mariners used 67 players last year, and it was a record, and it was 162 games. We're now playing, you know, 40% of that, 37% of that, and they get 60 players to go through. I, I, I find it highly... I, granted, there was not a, a pandemic 
happening at the time. Uh, I'd be surprised if they really cycle through. And and the other part is that they can add players. You know, they can they can take players off and add players on. It's a it's a complicated process, but you can do that if you need to. Um, Emma Bachelary wrote a piece at Sports Illustrated. Uh, I think it was last week. She got a copy of the initial version of the operations manual and compared it to the mm-hmm. latest version. The initial number of players was fifty, not sixty. So they added 10 more, and I feel like part of that was to be a little bit safe, but part of it, and you know, this isn't based on inside reporting or anything, but it sure seems like with most teams taking a few faraway prospects, the teams probably wanted to add some slots for those guys. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think, you know, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a... I w- it's not a concession, but it's a place that kind of both sides could potentially win, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's a larger... Uh, so the ability is there to bring in more players, uh, which is good for the players, right? Yep. Uh, but the discretion is there for the teams, and they don't have to. And my guess is front offices said, look, we don't have to add to your, you know, to your expenses very much here. We can bring in these guys we can have oversight we can have control which they you know this is what they all care about uh in terms of player development and see how these you know and help these guys develop or oversee whatever they're doing at at a closer level and it doesn't actually change kind of your expenses on the major league side and so i think both sides probably you know saw that as as a as a hedge or a bridge or, you know, whatever you want to call it, it was unlikely, you know, it's marginal, but it's kind of a thing that they could both agree on. Yeah. It's not a problem for the players association. is going to argue against it. And again, with only paying the players, their triple a rate, they're barely making more than they were making to sit at home for the most part. So. Right. And, and my guess is that if you're in the front office, you would argue and say, listen, $400 a month, is worth it for our ability to, you know, to get a sense of where these guys are at in their conditioning, in their, you know, just after this layoff and uh, and give them some instruction. But there's some guys, like, the most egregious one I've run through so far is Will Banfield, the Marlins system, who hit, like, mm-hmm. 195 in the Midwest League last year. And yeah. granted... Most teams brought in five to seven catchers, which I assume is to avoid, like, you need to have extra bullpen catchers, so you might, at that point, you might as well bring in your catching prospects and put them on the 60-man. Right, although they can use um, the taxi squad guy as a bullpen catcher, right? Right, yeah, but they need guys, like, you just need guys to catch down in this alternate satellite camp, and if you're going to... If you're gonna like bring in like trip like your double A bullpen catcher coach, like you might as well just bring in your double A catching prospect instead, right? Right. Get him so some yeah, I mean, Banfield was a second rounder, right? Yeah. Not that long ago. I mean, I two years ago, I think. But if you put him in the majors this year, it would hit like 080. Like he would hit like a pitcher. Oh, right. Yeah. No, I think he's there to catch <laughs> right, bullpens so. and maybe get some instruction. <laughs> But, yeah, like, you know, Robert Poisson is 17 and is yet to make his professional debut, even though we've been talking about him for that, five years. That, to me, feels like a, a control thing, yeah, right? It's just, I don't even know if he's going to get that many reps or or the instruction is going to be. I mean, because in reality, like, would you think he was going to play a ton in the DSL this year? Well, so I think he might have came stateside to the AZL. I don't. 
but yeah, he's going to get more reps over the course of the summer camp than he would have in actual game action, most likely, which is a little bit weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that to me, like I said, just sounds, or just feels like, like a, uh, it just feels like control. Like I, I, we want him here, and even if we're not going to put him through many paces or or do that much stuff, it's just we have him under our supervision, kind of thing. And again, you know, you don't know. We don't know necessarily the individual player's situation. He may not have had somewhere to go back to where he could train. Right. Whereas, right. Well, that was that was a really interesting one. In uh, you know, we mentioned Blake Walston in Arizona. Yeah. Christian Robinson is not on their list because he's already in Arizona because he was unable to go back to the Bahamas. Yes. Players, injured players, so like JT Ginn, the Mets can still have in St. Louis if they want, although I think he's actually he's actually rehabbing outside the facility. But injured players or players who were unable to travel home are still allowed to use team facilities already. And some of these guys, you know... Some of the baseball camps or train their off-season trainers are doing, you know, training too. Like, I know Driveline has sprouted up several facilities for players in different parts of the country to train at. So you might not necessarily need them to report to get an actual training. But there are guys that, for various reasons, wouldn't have that available to them. Like, right. you know, guys, the best they can do is just, like, throwing off a flat ground into a net there are guys that are in that situation as well so i think it does there's like some room for i don't want to be like uh painting everything under one brush like these situations are individual to an extent um yeah and and just out of curiosity because i hadn't thought about i assume robinson gets the spring training Per diem, or you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I assume he's still on the four hundred dollars a month. Would be yeah. My... So it's just interesting, you know. But it's that was like kind of, I don't want to say like found money, but like he's already there, so they don't have to dedicate a spot to him. But they they still get to incorporate him. You know, I don't know if he has to be at the secondary site or what, or if he has to be at their actual facility because of his inability to travel or whatever, but like they get to work with him and they've been able to work with him the, you know, the whole time such that facilities were open anyway. Yeah. And I'm sure he's not the only player. He just is the only one that got mentioned. There were one of the more notable ones. Yeah. There were players that were unable to travel internationally back in March and just got stuck at at the spring training home. There were, I mean, there were major league players that that happened to, too. Yeah. Um, what are your kind of initial thoughts on how these camps have looked so far? Are you excited to have baseball back? Yeah, I am. I mean, well, so I'm conflicted. Yeah. I've, I, I think I've, I've gone on the record a few places that I, I don't really, I don't think there should be a season. Um, yeah, but like, do, do I desire a season? Yeah, I do. I, 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 well, first of all, I mean, I have kind of selfish motivations. I, yeah. I'm the editor-in-chief of a baseball site. That's my job. Uh, my job is a lot easier and certainly more safer uh, when, there's a, when there's a season happening. Um, but beyond that, like, I, I think I sent a, a clip to Jeff, and now, and now I don't remember who, who it was. But it was just, you know, like batting practice. I know I watched uh, Vlad uh, Jr.'s, like, hitting some balls, and, like, you just hear, like, 
clank against the the seats and stuff like that. It sounds good. It's nice. It's nice. There's like a, you know, I assume you feel the same way to some degree. Like we're at the park enough, and we or or we watch enough that like there's a catharsis to having this thing that hasn't been there back. And even if it's just batting practice, like there's it's not just a sense of normalcy, but like we obviously like we we love this game and and this part of it and so uh yeah it's been i i wouldn't say that it's gone smoothly for a lot of these the summer camps and stuff uh and and players reporting uh i know the mets had you know someone someone reported that uh ahmed rosario and marcus stroman weren't there and then people were all in a, a tizzy about whether they were just not reporting them being on the COVID-19 IL yet and that kind of thing. And Stroman was like, yeah, I'm driving and I'll be there tomorrow or, or whatever. So like, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in that vein where like guys just haven't shown up. Sean Doolittle just today was talking about how his initial screening, they haven't gotten the results back yet, but he's already been tested a second time. So there are a lot of issues on that front. And I have a lot of uh, internal conflict about, you know, watching this all happen and do i think it's worth it no i don't but like is it if if it happens will i watch it and will i enjoy the act of the game going on i i think i will i i think that's about where i am although i don't actually know if i'm gonna feel comfortable watching again you know i'm a baseball writer i'm gonna have to watch some amount of this for professional reasons, and I'm certain, you know, I'm probably going to be writing 20,000 more words about it over the next two and a half weeks, but I don't know, like, how good I'm going to feel about it until the games are actually happening, until we're in, like, game six or whatever, and it's just, like, right. the random Thursday night, you know, let's turn on the bets and then, you know, find whatever West Coast game is interesting after that. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it at that point. Hopefully I'll feel good about it, but I really don't know yet. In terms of the initial opening, it's kind of been a mess. Um, oh, yeah. The, like, the actual physical protocols, I think, have been pretty good from what we've seen. Mm-hmm. But the testing has just, you know... So, Major League Baseball and the Players Association jointly reported... I think this was on Friday night. Um, is it Friday night or Saturday morning? I don't I think I th- think it was Friday night. Yeah. Over the weekend, they reported what turned out to be incomplete testing results from intake only, which was that 31 players tested positive. And that was, because of how it was originally reported, people thought that that was like the complete picture of COVID in baseball. And it later came out that those, that that was only the intake testing and didn't include dozens of players who had tested positive outside the intake testing and also was not a complete picture because a lot of tests aren't back yet. You mentioned Doolittle already. The A's actually had to cancel their practice today. We're recording this on Sunday because their intake testing results aren't back yet. Still, several days later. And within there... It's also, like, these are 31 people that have a potentially deadly virus. Like, that's not, the number to celebrate would be zero. It's not 31. And especially yeah. because it's not actually 31, it's actually like 60 or 70. But right. I, I saw some some people going through kind of the, the prior announcements and stuff. And, and like you said, it's it's much closer to 70. 
as a baseline. Like yeah. it, it could be higher than that. To be very clear, I think there there are two or a few things kind of going on. I I appreciate what you're saying in terms of of saying like the number to celebrate is zero, and that's yeah. true. And I don't think we should just be like, oh, thirty one. Like that's like that's a good number because, yeah. as you said, these are people, um, and. I mean, beyond it just being higher than that, like 31 people is still... And it's that's a lot of people that, you know, have families that are going to worry about this and also going to interact with this person potentially. And so it could spread beyond... The, that's 31 players that we keep track of. We, you know, the the PA and the league, as far as I know, are not keeping track of, like, if their families then contract it or anything like that. Yes. Right? And that's that's all, you know, damage that that is you know, felt on, on an individual level and all of that. Um, I mean, I will say this. The the sampling, as I said, the A's hadn't reported theirs in total. I think there were other clubs as well that not just partial, but fully, you know, hadn't fully uh, processed and thus were not included. I will say, I think, I don't think it's wrong to say 1.2% out of the 3,000, you know, 185 samples is something to be, um, you don't have to be happy about it, right? But you could you could say, like, that's not as bad. It was not as bad as I expected based on the NFL, uh, not the NFL, I'm sorry, the NHL rate, which was, I think, in the 5% range, 5.5% range, and the NBA, which was in the 7-ish range. Uh, percent range uh and again as you said this is not holistic i i don't think people should look at this and say mlb is doing a good job because as you said this is kind of presented in a way to to curate the uh the stats to kind of as as people say like you can you can say anything with a set of statistics right they've tweaked it and presented it a certain way and i think we need to be aware and call that out that said uh the fact that they could generate 1.2% out of 3100 samples is not the worst thing to me i guess <laughs> um yeah it's not but i don't think people should be satisfied with it and say like okay they're all good like that should be very clear yeah, like, again, the number here to act... Like, the winning number here is zero. It's not 100%. It's not 100. Um, 31, or, you know, 70, or whatever the real number is, none of those numbers are enough for them to shut it down. Uh, you know, Jeffrey and I have been talking over the last couple of weeks what it would actually take to get shut down. Well, but but it's funny, too, because when it, when it shut down originally, how many, how many people was it? It was zero. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, like, it's not enough because they've just decided, like, there are costs that we're going to uh, accept. But when they shut down for the first time for multiple months, it was significantly less than, yeah. than the number that we're getting now. Yeah. Um, but, again, I kind of think when they shut down, they were probably just expecting everything to be picked back up by April 20th. Like I think Dory. that's right. So... A lot of things have happened in the last three and a half months, certainly in both society and baseball. I, I again, we just shouldn't be playing right now. Like, no. we we just we we shouldn't be playing, and that's I think that's obvious. And you know, we're already seeing because within that group is a number of players who are very significant factors on a pennant team. Like, this is... 
even yeah, just from a competitive Freddie standpoint. Freeman, probably the most prominent at this point. And Freddie Freeman, according to his wife on Instagram, is really sick right now. Yeah, and, not... and also did not have it when he reported. He tested negative yeah. when he yeah. reported. Yeah, like he's he's really, really sick. He's not going to... This isn't going to be a two-week quarantine. He picks up a bat and walks into the middle of the break. Right, Lord. this is not mild symptoms. This yeah. is not um, it's asymptomatic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if you're worried about the great competitive integrity of the pennant race, I, I got some news for you. But you also shouldn't be worried about that. You should be worried about whether Freddie Freeman's going to give this to his kids. Right. That's what you should actually be worried about. And you should be worried about whether Freddie Freeman's going to be healthy and able to live full life after this. Whether yeah. Freddie I mean, Freeman's I, going I to have I think that's the thing is a lot of, and, you know, we've seen this in a lot of the, the comments of the articles that, that we've run at BP, but, you know, people are like, they're healthy, they're fine. Well, fine is not alive, right? Like, those are two right. different things. And the severity of, of the damage, even to asymptomatic, you know, people who have it asymptomatically, they're, they're still finding that out on a long-term basis. And that, you know, they can still develop these, you know, lung, uh, lung-related lung issues, which, you know, if you play baseball, granted less than some other sports, but you have to run. You have to be able to, to take your full breaths and that kind of stuff. So I, I think people are underrating the, the damage that comes with this and that's you know that's even on asymptomatic or mild symptoms cases and that's ignoring the fact that you know i know that i've seen plenty of accounts i know uh people not you know personally and and people who who have people you know wives and and family members who have had this and for weeks and months it's you know it's it's just something that doesn't go away and that they're drained you know, taking a walk from the bed to the couch is like something that requires a, a multi-hour nap afterward. And it's, just, you know, it's just not something you recover from very quickly. You know, I'll, I'll tell a brief personal story that's actually about me. Um, I obviously had a heart procedure about a month ago. Um, and before you have a heart procedure, they require chest x-rays, CTs, etc. So my chest CT showed mild lung nodules and mild lung scarring that was most likely from a recent asymptomatic respiratory infection. Well, what the fuck do you think that might have been? Right. Um, I have no way of proving that, but I was an essential worker who was never working from home in a coronavirus hotspot, so decent chance at some point I'm going to get antibodies test here just for... But, I mean, it doesn't even matter, does it? Um, So... You know, and there's recent reports that the asymptomatic rate may be as much as 50%, and that some of that some asymptomatic people are showing specifically heart and lung damage afterwards. So, right. I, again, I don't, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, like, two waves here of thought that I kind of, like, understand why people have them, but don't think they're fair. One of them is that these guys are young and that they're not going to get seriously sick. And while it's less likely that they get seriously sick, they still might get seriously sick. Yep. And the other one is the idea, and again, I have some sympathy towards this and have kind of taught this, you know, I've devil's advocated this with Jeffrey on the podcast a few months ago. I am an essential worker. I have to go into work every day. Why shouldn't these guys have to go in? 
in what is almost certainly much safer conditions than your median essential worker. The thing is, you probably shouldn't have to actually go in. That's a failure of society. Right. And making other people do that just to make you feel better is shitty. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say it's kind of, it just makes me, and a lot of this in the response to it have been making me think about that headline from, I think it's a Huffington Post article, which is like, I don't know how to make, like, how to convince you to care about other people. Yeah. And I agree. Like, I, it, 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 this is a thing I've, I've never fully understood with like hazing and stuff like that, where it's like, well, it happened to me. Well, like it happened to you, but it sucked. Why, why would you want someone else to do that? Like, if it was a shitty experience for you, don't, well, like, why, why would you wish that on someone else? As, as a former lawyer, and you're the wife of a lawyer, the bar exam is a good example of that. Right, yeah. It's like, well, I mean, why would you perpetuate this? And, and you know, I certainly understand the notion that, like, you know, if, if you are a... I understand the emotion, right? The yeah. the idea that, that if you're a grocery store clerk or employee and you have to go in for minimum wage and expose yourself to this that like you know the complaints of uh an a, a multi-million dollar uh a year athlete would fall on deaf ears i i get that and and i don't i i understand it uh but i also think like the the genesis of that issue is that you're not getting paid what you're worth right like you're an essential worker you have to go into a grocery store to help society function in a time that it is like at its most non-functional um and you're not getting hazard pay you're not getting better benefits you're not getting all of those those things are all the things that that are wrong you know what i mean like all of those things should be addressed and you shouldn't be you should be in a situation where you know like you have sick leave that you're able to take to make sure that you don't you know endanger yourself or others when you might not be feeling well all of those things are relevant and i don't think you should necessarily be upset about or or the rest of us should be upset on your behalf when someone who has those things is taking advantage of them right i mean i think my i guess my counter to that is the idea that like if we all had the ability to take care of ourselves in a way that didn't endanger our lives in terms of our ability to pay rent, our ability to put food on the table, stuff like that, uh, we don't really knock people for taking advantage of them. And I think those things should be provided to the essential workers rather than kind of used as a cudgel against the people who already have them. Also, I received a text message from my from my own couch, and I apparently said you are the wife of a lawyer. You did your, say that. Your I was wife just is let it a go. lawyer. Not, <laughs> Correct. Uh, not of is. Um, so sorry about that one. Not not a problem. Um, but yeah, like just because things aren't good for you doesn't mean we shouldn't make them good as good as possible for other people, and that's just like. Yeah, I, I think your HuffPost headline is very good there. I would be a lot more comfortable with this if, like, I'm a lot more comfortable with the NHL plan, which is literally to go to a different country where this is, like, 2% as bad as it is in the United States of America, and literally build walls and wall off areas of cities to form a bubble. Like, I would be a lot more comfortable with that than what MLB is doing, which just... Yeah, I I would be more comfortable with it. But at that point, I'd also be like, why why are we bothering? Like, this is a lot of effort to go through. You know, I I think I saw 
uh, someone say earlier I, on Twitter, and I, I forgive me, I forget who it was and, and where it was, but um, you know that on some level, like sports are, are a reward for. I think maybe it was Sean Doolittle in his quote. He said, "Sports are uh, a reward for a functioning society," and that's that's true, and it isn't, but it certainly is true in these times, right? Like people look at, oh well, the the EPL is back, the Bundesliga is back, well. You know, I think this was this was a Jesse Doherty uh, headline for the Washington Post too. Is like, you know, the MLB is kind of is like following the Bundesliga's plan for return, except it doesn't. It's not happening in Germany. Yeah. If this was happening in Germany, we wouldn't have as much of a problem, right? Their rates are significantly lower across the country. Like they, they're in a very different situation, and I get the frustration of seeing like other countries being able to bring their sports back. Uh, some are doing it with fans, obviously. We're looking at that in the K- in uh, in the CPBL, but you know the KBO is back and all this kind of stuff. But like they kind of did the shit you need to do in the first place yeah. uh, to to get to that point, and we have. Yeah, like you know, I did mention I was going to talk about New Japan Pro Wrestling a little bit, so I will drop it in here. New Japan Pro Wrestling can have fans back next week because Japan's done a hell of a lot better handling this virus than the United States of America is. They just have, right? So. Um, the situations aren't the sports are coming back, but the situation that that yeah. led to that are not comparable. And and New Japan Pro Wrestling as a business, as did the KBO, as did MPB, they all had much better and less um, nihilistic approaches to all of this than Major League Baseball has had. Right. Which Correct. you know, Major League Baseball seems to think it's just okay if hundreds of players get sick over the course, and, of the and they want to bring fans back. And, yeah. and, I mean, you see that the, the Steinbrenner just said it, but, you know, uh, but I think the White Sox and Cubs both mentioned it right after the schedule was implemented. Obviously, yeah. a, a few, you know, Texas was talking about it beforehand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think nihilistic is, is yeah. the right word for it. So, about a half dozen players have opted out so far. The biggest names, uh, David Price, Ryan Zimmerman, Felix Hernandez, probably. Yeah, I mean Hernandez on name value. Um, yeah. uh, Ian Desmond was was yeah, another Ian one. Desmond. Yeah, I thought Ian Desmond's uh, letter that he wrote when he opted out was very, uh, very well done. Uh, for, worth reading, uh, you know, on a number of topics, but also about what we should be doing with baseball right now. But there's multiple players, including Mike Trout, that have not publicly committed to playing out the season. And, you and know, Trout's pro- one of the only people I've seen. I, there have been some more recently, but but yeah. he was like the first person I saw out there in a mask. Yeah, was running through his warm ups and stuff in a yeah. mask. Yeah, and uh, he, as we've mentioned, he had been publicly non-committal about two and a half, three months ago about playing the season. Um, his wife is pregnant. Yep. Uh, and there due, were, in, due in August, early August, I believe. Th- there were a number of players who had uh, babies coming that had mentioned some hesitance. I mm-hmm. believe he's the only one to still have mentioned continuing hesitance. What would it yeah, do I mean, to baseball if Mike Trout opted out of the season? I mean, I, you know, honestly, I don't think it'll do that much. I, okay. Maybe, maybe I'm, um, um, I don't know, naive about that. But like, this is. I, I can't find it. I'm sure there are people who will criticize it and blame him for a variety of things if mm-hmm. if he does. But I think those people will do that to anybody from, you know, 
Joe Ross is probably I don't know if he's the least well known. He was he was a fairly prominent prospect, but like he I, I think everyone else who has officially opted out has significant career earnings yes. at the very least. And and Ross is I think below three or four million dollars yes. uh total. So I mean obviously it's it's significant is relevant, but or is is uh, relative, but um you know what I mean there. I, yeah. I think you know, Trout opting out, it's one season, and it's a shortened season, and I, to me, it's kind of like anything goes, and that includes people not wanting not wanting to do it, and, like, it's going to be a weird season anyway, so wh- what, is it, what does it really matter? Like, did, I mean, I had this whole conversation with Stephen Goldman on, on his podcast, but, like, I don't, I don't know that legitimacy is, is really the question here. Like, it's a bizarre season that people are going to kind of discard or or discount or, you know, address mentally no matter what. Like, even if you and I sit here and say, well, you know, we're, we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to make the mental decision to say we're going to count the 2020 season as though it was a normal one. When, when we talk about it uh, in the future – you're gonna have to set. You're gonna have to provide caveats, just like people do with 1981, right? Yeah. That that change how we analyze it and and do stuff like that. So I I, I guess I just don't know that like one person not uh, not playing, even if it is the best player in the game, is gonna change that calculus. Apparently, while we were recording this, Zach Wheeler had a I assume a Zoom press conference with the Phillies, in which he basically said the same thing as Trout. Um, He's another player who has a pregnant wife, and he reported to camp but is still considering opting out um, during camp mm-hmm. or when his uh, child is born. Right. Which is, it's interesting. I, I, this is mo- already more good players and high name value players opting out than I honestly expected. Um I expected it to be a couple, and I also expected it to skew. As far as we know, none of the players that opted have opted out so far are classified as high risk players. Right. I, that's. I. I was wondering that as well. I, but it's definitely possible. We just don't. Yes. We we wouldn't necessarily know that. Yes. So it's you know Buster Posey is still publicly uncertain. Um, Sean Doolittle is still publicly uncertain. Yeah, he, he said earlier today towards, he's yes. leaning towards playing, yes. but that similar to, to what you said about Wheeler, and you know, like yeah. if he feels uncomfortable at any yeah. point or mentally exhausted, he'll yeah. he'll opt out at that point. And he's been speaking out over problems he has with the COVID protocols. Yeah, uh, you know the lag in testing time. Um, and especially. we should specify he these are like the league wide protocols and implementation. Yeah. Not he he. I think he went out of his way to to say like the Nats trainers and health staff have been really great. It's yeah. just you know getting getting the tests back in a timely manner and and you know having the proper gear uh, provided yeah, by the PPE. league and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, he was also concerned that there wasn't enough PPE going right. around. Um, so I don't know. I I just I. All of this is uncomfortable, and, you know, Kate's I mean, been doing, I, I, Kate's I been the, doing correct... the thread of all the reasons we shouldn't be playing this season, and it's right. just like, every time I hear one of these, it just hammers home, we shouldn't be playing this season. Right. There, I, I think, right, I mean, as we kind of talked about, there were circumstances, like, there, there was, 
There's a version of this and like how it's playing out that is fine, but like the country didn't get itself together yes. to do that. Neither and, did Major League Baseball. Right, but even I mean, even if if the if the COVID rates around the country were dramatically different, I could see even the way MLB handled it. Yeah. Like being a the the risk analysis is ends up being a lot different. You know what I mean? The risk reward proposition. Even if even if it's more risk than you'd want or more risk than there should have been if, if MLB had gotten itself together, um they, it's still a lot different. You know what I mean? I keep thinking back, if they wanted to have a season during this on like March twenty eighth, they should have bought five hundred acres of farmland in the middle of Wyoming, <laughs> built twenty baseball fields and you know, facilities and it would have been ready by now, right? Uh, you could well, I don't know. Done... Every single time any any MLB team does construction, it, it runs significantly over budget. <laughs> and <laughs> but like, I mean, that's a very extreme example of what I'm suggesting. But there right. were ways to construct a bubble or to just come up with a better idea than teams yeah. playing in their home parks. I mean, I, without I've a said quarantine. This before. Well, I don't. I don't think that the league wants. Want, you know, like the the NBA. So granted, there are, there are complications to this. The NBA is a lot smaller as in terms of number of people involved than the than MLB is. But I don't think the league wanted to take on the uh, and and you you know you have a law background in this, so you tell me if I'm too far afield. But like I, the there's an assumption of risk when you start to take, you know, when you when you uh, or, or there's like a duty of care when you start to take on the the thing of having a bubble and making sure it's enforced. There's all of a sudden a responsibility placed on you, the league, because you're asking people to to abide by these protocols to have the protocols enforced in you know up to a certain standard of care. And I think MLB basically said we don't want to take on that liability, that duty of care. Uh, and if we just basically say, look, the, the governors of these individual states are, are, you know, setting the terms under which, you know, people can show up to work or not, um, then we'll just abide by those. And if someone gets sick, you know, because we haven't assumed that duty of care and, and, terms of establishing a bubble uh it's possible they got sick at home it's possible they got sick you know at the grocery store any number of things could kind of complicate you know whose fault it is that it got sick and thus we're we're less likely to be liable yeah and um i also think that the players didn't want to be in that level of restricted environment we heard a lot of pushback when that was initially folded a couple of months ago true um before we wrap up the first segment, we do have to talk about the Mets' ownership situation, which uh, we'll kind of run through this briefly. But the Mets are cutting down, like cutting down to like the final ownership bid type situations, and it's still basically all the public people we'd heard before: um, A. Rod and J. Lo, with various people behind them. Um, Harrison Blitzer, the Sixers owners, the brothers from London, probably Steve Cohen. Uh, but it does sound like this team's going to be sold by the end of the calendar year, which is, uh, again, uh, it's hard to get much worse than the Will Ponds, but it's probably not impossible. And I was going to say, I know people abide by the devil you know versus yeah. the devil you don't, but like, I don't know. These are cartoons. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a risk on this one. As someone coming out of the McCourt, situation yeah 
Uh, sometimes it's it's okay to just yeah. not know enough. You know, it's okay to, to take the chance. Usually you're going to get undercapitalized or evil. You usually don't get both. And, well. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, so the only... The, I think the biggest risk uh, as a Mets fan is that the Wilpons do try and win. Now, like, yes. they're incompetent yes. and, and they, you know, they're hamstrung by themselves in a variety of areas. But they do tend to want to win because they need the money from a team attempting to win. Yes. Uh, if you have a ton of money and you want to be highly efficient, you know, like every other team in the league at this point, uh, or most other teams in the league at this point, you know, you might go through these kind of uh, intentionally fallow period or, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's, 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 uh, I don't know. You, there are depressing aspects to the teams that are well funded and choose not to spend as opposed to the ones that are underfunded and still at least kind of do their best given the situation. Yeah, um, they they do try and win, and they wanted to be the they wanted to get the commissioner's trophy from the commissioner. And we'll talk about the commissioner a little bit more in the third half because we have a couple of questions. But you know, it does sound like they've given up the ghost on the idea of Jeff Wilpon continuing to be able to play general manager, which at least is some improvement over the last four times they tried to sell the team. Uh, it certainly makes it more likely they'll sell the team. Yes. So, uh, I'd also hazard that given the way this season is playing out, um, or or looks to be playing out, uh, even or even if it if it doesn't end up happening, I would bet that there's maybe two or three more teams that end up getting sold down the line um, because of of you know what happened in 2020. Yeah, a lot of these teams have uh, significant cash flow issues, and that's not going to be helped by a season where. You know, we've talked a lot about teams making money, not making money, how to figure it out. Let's not be mistaken. The loss of two-thirds of your local TV revenue plus your entire gate revenue or close are going to be pretty substantial and probably more substantial for most teams in the salary they're pulling back. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've tried to be very clear that the losses these teams are incurring in many part, in, in many cases are very real. Um, I just, I think, you know, I, I've used the Ricketts a lot as a, as an example. Um, like, you know, first of all, their TV deal is not fully set up. I think the, they, they are launching an RSN, which should be a cash cow, but Comcast is not carrying it. Comcast is the biggest, I believe the biggest, uh, cable provider in Chicago. So, you know, their, their TV money is not what you might think it would be. So when, you know, Ted, uh, whoever it was, whichever one of the Rickets came out and said that it was, you know, game day revenue was 70% of their their salary. I, I mean, it, it's, it's a little deceptive because last year they did have the the uh, WGN deal. So, it's you know, they're, they're kind of in a state of flux. And they also, if he's grouping in all the the surrounding bars and restaurants and stuff that they own into game day revenues uh you know you could maybe get to 70 percent. i i don't think i I think it's kind of a dishonest presentation but the point is like it's a substantial figure for them right like it's i i think that's real i i think the the reason i the reason you don't need to care is that like they've stretched themselves in uh in terms of taking on debt to finance a lot of these uh other things that they bought these other revenue streams they've invested in and like that's their pro they that was a choice by them 
uh, and now that they need to service it, they're kind of in trouble. Well, that's their problem. Like that's not something you necessarily need to take on as a uh, something to care about. Uh, so I, well, the the losses can be real. Uh, they're also kind of self-inflicted in a lot of places. I believe that was Tom Ricketts who said Tom, that, sorry. who does, in fairness, look almost exactly like, like Ted like Cruz. That's probably Ted what Cruz. happened. Yeah, yep. I do that too. So um, I did try and promise Craig that we would keep this to ninety minutes, and we're already over an hour. So we will be back in a minute with the third segment of the podcast. Welcome back to, for all you kids out there, this is the uh, third segment of the show. I'm supposed to do some housekeeping here. Again, I don't actually remember all of Jeffrey's thick somehow, like I've like just mentally blocked it out of my head, so I'll do the best I can here. This is episode 229 of For All You Kids Out There, a Patreon-supported baseball prospectus Mets adjacent podcast. I think I got most of the words in there. Sounds right um, you can uh, contact us uh, on Twitter at, I think, for all you kids. Um, email is allyoukids at baseballperspectus.com. We have a Facebook group uh, where you can ask questions and stuff. And we have a number of questions from the Facebook group this week, which I will get to in a second. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug, Craig? Uh I mean, I would baseball prospectus, you know, yes. please, Base, please baseball subscribe. Prospectus, which... I mean, we, so I, you know, I would just throw this out there. We, uh, managed not to, to cut staff or do anything like that throughout the year, but that's powered by subscriptions. And so every subscription helps us, you know, continue to, to pay our staff and, and keep people on payroll and producing the content that I think is well worth the under $5 a month, um, that it, it, takes to be a premium subscriber and uh the other thing i guess i'd plug is uh five and dive which will end up being twice a week it's it's been once a week for the most part as there hasn't been as much baseball as we would all like but if the season kind of gets underway we'll go back to the twice a week format where it's just kind of i talk with emma bachelary of sports illustrated and bradford william davis of the new york daily news on you know general stuff within the game but we also talk about a lot of the things you know we've talked about the testing uh stuff the 60-man rosters the way teams are are building those rosters stuff like that so it's all you know topical news style discussions also in the baseball prospectus podcast network along Correct. with steve goldman's podcast the prospect podcast and several fantasy prospect podcasts that uh, you would know more about them than I do. I think there's there's a dynasty one and a regular one. Correct. Flags Fly Forever is yes. kind of a, a regular like uh, a regular style fantasy league podcast. Uh, although they will they'll touch on you know a variety of things. Uh, there is no off season. Tino is the dynasty focused league or yes. podcast because you know 
there's definitely not an abundance of baseball podcasts out there in the world. Right? Sorely lacking. <laughs> the, the world is lacking baseball writers talking about things. I saw, um, what was it, Steve, Mike Farron, and Craig Calcaterra did a Bob Dylan podcast the other day? Yeah. <laughs> they both have they they both they all have far too many opinions about Bob Dylan. Yes, the only thing more stereotypical is if we had assembled a Bruce Springsteen podcast instead. Right, right. Yeah. or or for the more current. I mean, if you if you want to get even a little more current, it would be um, oh god, Jason Isbell. Yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. So we have a number of questions from the Facebook group. Some are Craig specific, since I did say you'd be on the podcast this week. Some are general, so. We'll try and get through them, and then we will talk briefly about Hamilton, and Craig will give several TV recommendations in lieu of me not making him talk about the New Japan Cup. The New Japan Cup has been very good so far. See the last two Hiromo matches. That's, that's, that's the New Japan Cup talk so far. All right, so this question is from Andy, and obviously it was a few days ago. Um, Today is Bobby Bonilla Day, and as Mets fans, it gets rubbed in our faces every year, even though the Bruce Souter contract was much worse. Why do you suppose that is? Is it simply just LOL Mets? Am I taking the first shot at the... I mean, sure, I, you can answer the questions first. I'll, I'll pop in. I I mean, I you tell me, but Bobby Bonilla was like a bigger deal kind of than Bruce Sutter? Obviously, Bruce Sutter is a Hall of Famer. He's a I Hall think, of... No, like, I understand he's a better player, but I kind right. of feel like... Bobby Bonilla was also like bad with the Mets and was emblematic of a specific down yeah. point in the Mets history and then later came, you know, just kind of had a weird career in which he, you know, but like that buyout was like specifically like out of an awful contract on what was literally nicknamed by, I believe, Jeff Perlman, the worst team money can buy. And then later on, the interest rates on it were being driven by Madoff interest rates. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, it became a kind of microcosm of Metsness, even though it's, there's, you know, Michael Mayer does a thread every year of all of the deferrals around baseball, and Bobby Benilla's annuity payment, A, wasn't really that bad for the team, and B, isn't that major compared to, like, you know. No, but I, I, I think it's also that he, I mean, so, so it's all of that. I mean, I think I think the big thing, I think the inflection point is that like he was not very good yeah. when when it was going on. You know what I mean? I, yeah. And and so it, it's kind of representative in a way of like the the Mets or really anyone like paying someone forever who was not even good for the team. Yeah. Um, although he, I mean, like he he was not that bad offensively. He, Again, he's... they had Bobby Benilla on the worst team that money could buy signed to a big free agent contract. Managed to dump the contract and then got him back later, and that's right. when they had to do the buyout. Right, they tried right. it again. Right. So, so and yeah. but the other part of that is like Bruce Sutter stopped playing in 1988. Yeah. Bobby Bonilla stopped playing in 2001. So there's yeah. just a lot more. I mean, first of all, the explosion of media, uh, you know, and and I don't remember specifically like the rise of ESPN and when it happened, but like the attention paid to this kind of stuff from, uh, you know, uh, more public media and media that was gaining popularity and the focus on sports and then also athletes and what they made and that kind of stuff all kind of intensified and certainly was more widely dispersed. Right. 
And so I, I think that's a big part of it. It's just like when it happened. I would I would bet that there's a decent chance that Suter's deal, it's not going to attract the same amount of attention, again, because of, of what Jarrett said. But like, the, you know, it would get more attention if it happened in a more recent context. Also, the Benia contract was not a deferral um, like Suter or Max Scherzer or like literally every major contract, the Nationals have signed. It was an actual buyout, so he's not just being paid for a season that he played in the past. He's being paid for a season he didn't even play for the team. Which right. like there's just like all of these small factors that make it slightly funnier that in the end between Madoff and the Mets having gotten him several times and him being awful with the Mets and he got cut right after the card game thing and just like all of this stuff kind of blows it up, but it's also LOL Mets. I yeah. Mean. Yeah. I don't want to dismiss that either. I mean, but, the, but it's also part of what makes the Mets LOL Mets, right? Like on some yes. level. Yeah. So our next question is from John Kim and it's a pretty simple one. Which owner will replace Rob Manford as commissioner? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess the default I'd go to is, like, you know, Tom Warner was the guy who was going up against him uh, when when Manfred was elected. So I guess, like, he'd probably have a shot. I mean, I don't think... The way to approach it is probably just, like, as a cynical thing, like, who who would be the worst, kind of. Uh, And I think there's an argument for Jerry Reinsdorf, but I don't think Reinsdorf wants to do it. He's too old, I think. Yeah. If he wanted it, he would have been the commissioner when Sealing took over. Yeah, right, right. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't keep track of a lot of the politicking within yeah. in uh, baseball unless like unless it's contentious in a negotiation like this. Um, I mean, I don't. I, I guess I would say the potentially worst uh, answer of someone who's not too old for it and who might want it just to stick it to players as much as possible is Artie Moreno. Yeah, um, we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago. Um, I think Artie Moreno is possible. I think various members of the Ricketts family are certainly possible. I, Billy Bean, I think, is a low-key potential commissioner here uh, for the same reasons that Sandy Alderson would have been 10 years ago. Interesting. Uh, Alderson's probably too old now and, and too, you know, obviously. Yeah, I think with the cancer, probably not. Uh, but, you know, the internal league office candidate is Dan Hallam. Uh, yeah. So, Do you want, yeah. like, Manfred, but more? Yeah. Just, just more. Um, you know, George W. Bush is, I think, still in play here for a caretaker commissioner, which, you know, whatever. Yeah, honestly, it wouldn't be the most surprising thing. None of the options are good. I mean, this, the, I, I think I said this at the time, but when everyone was like, oh, Manfred keeps fucking up and... and you know, like he should be replaced. He's going to be replaced with someone more hardline pro ownership than yes. he is. Yes. And the that's, owner, I know for some yes. people that's hard to imagine, but it's absolutely the case. Yes. The owners view him as having failed in breaking the players union during this. They don't view and, him. And as... the reason he didn't get elected, you know, on the, on the first or second yes. votes, uh, was because they thought he was too, he wasn't hard enough on players in general. Yes, Tia's view is too soft here, not too hard. And if, if, you know, to be fair, if you view, or not fair, but like just as as additional context, if you view all his actions as someone desperately trying to prove to people that he is hard on players, it, everything makes sense, right? Like, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, next question is from Matthew. Um, he would like our thoughts on Manfred and the Grievance specifically. Uh, he says, I have lost all respect for him and that cheer squad of reporters that back up the owner's side. Can't imagine who you're talking about. <laughs> Bobby Evening Gusts. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, welcome, I guess. Welcome to the the club. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it really depends, like, where your respect came from. Um, was it just because he was commissioned? Why did you respect Manfred in the first place? I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, he's a good labor lawyer. I don't think that's up for debate. Um, I just don't respect, like, (laughs) what... Uh, the side that he does it for, I guess. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a pretty fair way to look at it. Um, I don't think the grievance is a winner. Uh, again, we've been talking about for the last month or so. The grievance probably has more value as a trade chip, and specifically a trade chip for the next CBA negotiations in sixteen to eighteen months, because it's probably not going to be done by then, and. That's something, you know, dismissal of the grievance has been something that the PA has traded back on previous grievances in CBA disputes or CBA negotiations. Yeah, um, I, I think that's probably true. And I, so I've had some arguments with people around, you know, around the industry on on the value of the grievance. I, I think, I don't think it's an automatic loser. And I, I guess no, the, thing, the thing that seems to me is that everyone I've talked to in, in any kind of in-depth about this, considers it unlikely to be a winner because MLB tends to win these grievances. Mm-hmm. But that, and, and I think that's fair, to be clear, but I don't understand, I guess what I don't fully understand is the logic behind why MLB would win this, right? I, I think the argument is that Manfred in going back to, uh, in, in going to that face-to-face meeting with Clark and you know, working out a quote-unquote framework and then having the players counter reestablish a good-faith nego- negotiation and a time frame in which, under which 60 games was the best efforts number, right? That's the yeah. argument. But to accept that argument, you have to ignore everything that happened since the March agreement, right? In, until that point. Why was the first... So, so I think... One of the concerns for the league around the grievance is that they, the league acknowledged that the players didn't have to come off of 100% pro rata pay, right? And none of their offers until the face-to-face one had included 100% pro rata pay. So is that good faith? And is, you know, is that good faith in one aspect? And then, you know, the timing of it also, the best efforts clause is affected by the timing of when those offers happened. But if you view them, and I think it's reasonable to do so, and I think you can make a good case for it, the the timing of all of that as uh, delaying, you know, running out the clock to get to the point where 60 games or about 35, 37% of the season is left, uh, which is all the owners wanted to pay in the first place, is is acceptable or qualifies under best efforts, then you're not really using best efforts, Right. Yeah, it's not. I view this kind of similarly to how I viewed the Chris Bryant grievance. Um, 
in that in and of itself, it's probably not a winner, but it's not an obvious loser. It's enough that it would probably get to the completion of the process. And the Players Association doesn't actually have anything to lose here. If they lose, they're just at the status quo. Correct. So I think it has some value as a negotiation chip. Agreed. The Bryant one ended up being in a weird time in labor negotiations, and also my understanding is that the player really wanted to see that particular grievance out. Um, so I still don't know. I don't know if you've had any. I, I don't understand how that how they lost that. Um, so essentially, they needed to prove, like it was it was Bryant's and the Players Association side that had to affirmatively prove everything, and there wasn't. Oh, so it wasn't like a, a preponderance of evidence could could generate it. It was kind of like you have to have like an email that says we're doing this for this reason, or you know, a very ob- like it had to be beyond plot. Like you know the. Le- the league had to, or actually the Cubs, because that was actually the player against the Cubs. Um, you know, the, the Cubs, and again, the decision never got leaked. Um, there were some articles that had some level, that had enough specificity to kind of read in between the lines. But, like, it wasn't, um, like, you know, Mike Olt did get hurt. And right. Right, you know, there are there are uh, like confounding right. factors. Even if they're public... unlikely to be actually right. to actually matter, you could you could right. ostensibly, you know, work them the, in. The Cubs had some defenses here. Like there were scouting reports that said his defense weren't great. There was a player that got hurt that he got called up to replace. Like, right, they did. So, uh, to, but to that point on on this grievance, I, I think you know I I know. When, when when attorneys do these investigations, what what they look for is you know there's there's potentially value to the discovery aspect as well, yes. and I don't think it's as much as people kind of assume it to be because I think it would be potentially fairly limited. I don't know that they're going to like get them to open the books on a bunch of things, but they would get access to emails and stuff from the other side, which could mm-hmm. you know be, we we can sit there and say like it's unlikely they'd put anything in writing you know because I think they understand that they could have a grievance filed against them in any, you know, in certain contexts. But it's definitely possible someone slipped up and did put something in writing in an email and that they would have the ability to go through and, and you know, get a better understanding of what MLB's understanding was at the time. And, you know, there, there could be value in that, too. Yeah. Again, I don't think that existed in the Chris Bryan case. I don't right. think there was like a smoking. I don't think there was like a text message from... Theo to Jed that said, "Hey, we're gonna fuck Brian over on service time <laughs> right, here," right. and that's right. like kind of what you actually. That's need. what you need, yeah, yeah. yeah or, or you know, just such a pile of evidence, and like there was enough both ways on that one. But again, my understanding of that grievance is that it didn't establish. MLB ended up, and the Cubs ended up not defending that grievance as doing this is legal. They, their defense was, "We didn't do this." Yeah. Right. Which is a different thing. So I think there is some potential value in this grievance. I don't think it's like, you know, there was certainly in the baseball commentary an idea that, like, this grievance had to be defended at all costs and, like, MLB shouldn't agree to give it up. If they had come to an agreement, that itself would have been evidence that there was a best efforts done because the agreement is itself evidence of effort. And... 
you know, there is some evidence that they didn't make best efforts, but that's really hard to actually prove in an affirmative labor context. So, um, Eugene Friedman's been talking about that on Twitter over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and he's and he's great at it. I do think though that there's there's value to playing these things out yes. as a PA to be a pain in the ass for MLB whether they lose them or win them to yes. just say like to to say like we're willing to do it. We're willing to go through this process even though it's it's uh, you know a pain in the ass for everybody. Um even if it ends up not in our favor because it means the next time you have the potential for agreements they have to take you moderately seriously yeah i think that's probably right and these you know grievances are expensive and you know kind of shitty to go through so making them go through it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world in and of itself um so i think there's but i also think that the next time we hear about this is some time from now like this is good like that brian grievance dragged on for what, like five years, and we would get like a twice a year update about it that was basically, yeah, <laughs> right, it's it was still happening. like five years, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, you know, Sahada or John Greenberg or somebody would say, yeah, this is still pending. <laughs> so, um, our next question is from Will. Um, he wanted us, and we talked about this a little bit in the first half, to discuss the strategies the teams used to build their player pool, but he kind of wanted us to focus a little bit more on veteran resurgence candidates uh, that might get, like, you know, that might play that wouldn't have played in a normal season. Uh, I haven't really thought of a lot of those quite yet. On the Mets specifically, Melky and Matt Adams are probably the two most obvious ones. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we mentioned Erasmo Ramirez. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There, there, there are maybe more guys that are just healthy now that we're going to miss a substantial part of the season. That Aaron might. Judge, Aaron Hicks. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jed Lowry is. <laughs> oh God, we didn't talk about that. We yeah. didn't talk about him. What was the? It was like left side. Uh, you know, undefined left side issues was how Anthony Tacoma uh, described his his injury. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he is a full go and will participate in a simulated game this afternoon. He's I mean, look, unlikely, but I'm just go, saying, but, like, there are guys like that. Right. He's a full go, but also still wearing that ridiculous brace. Brace, right, I, sure. I, I don't know what is going on here. I don't know what their end game is. I don't know. I don't know how the s- smaller season impacts the insurance, because usually you have to, you know, the way the Mets have constructed their insurance is usually that the player is unavailable for 60 games and then they get to pay out after the 60 games. Well, there's only going to be 60 games this season. Uh, A funny thing that's actually, this is branching off of the question a little bit. Um, The Mets actually would have ended up making out better had they never did the David Wright buyout. Because of the buyout, he's still getting the buyout amount and not the prorated amount. And the prorated amount is, would have been less than the buyout. So <laughs> this this came up. I think it was Prince Fielder. Um, like I think Prince Fielder is going to end up being the highest paid player in baseball this year, or close to it, uh, because of the good for him. Because Honestly. of the same idea, I think I'm like ninety percent sure it was Prince Fielder. Yeah, um, I can see that. Uh, let me check. 
yes, this is the last year of his contract. Because he was released, he's still making $24 million this year because he's not a roster player that can be affected by the proration. So I assume insurance is paying most of that. But, uh, yeah, the Mets, the Mets somehow reached a buyout with David Wright and the insurance company and still came out on the bottom of it, which is super Mets. And our last question is from Willie. Uh, he would like us to talk about potential replacement names for the Cleveland baseball franchise, which if you haven't been paying attention for the last few days, both the Washington football team and the Cleveland baseball team have uh, set up review processes for their team names that are racist against Native American culture. I can't imagine these are going to be long reviews. <laughs> no. Um, and it's just, it's kind of weird because, you know, Cleveland has been fighting so hard to keep that, especially the Chief Wahoo imagery, and they just like, and, you know, Dan Snyder has been fighting to keep his... Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's name, fought more than Dan Snyder. Which is substantially more racist and problematic. Uh, you know, it's basically a slur. And, yeah, as the second one of his corporate sponsors got involved, it was like, fuck, we're changing it. <laughs> so, well, it also helps, I mean, for the, for the, uh, for Snyder, I think FedEx was the second one. And I believe their CEO is a minority owner uh, in the team, which yes. kind of, kind of complicates things. Yes, also has naming rights over the field. and Right. Um, yeah, so Willie suggested, and this is also the most popular suggestion I've seen on social media, the Cleveland Spiders, which uh, was a earlier Cleveland baseball franchise of the 19th century, best known for becoming a syndicate franchise and literally being the worst team in baseball history um, in, I believe, the 1899 season. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some good logo possibilities there. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's fine with me. I've seen people float logos already that I've that I've enjoyed. I, you know, spiders aren't used as a nickname much. Richmond, uh, the the college or university, I should say, uh, uses it. I think that's fine. I don't know. I don't have a strong. I tweeted a joke about being the rollers. Everyone keeps using the rockers uh, because of the Rock and Roll Hall yeah. of Fame. I thought rollers would be better personally. Uh, people could show up with with uh, curling, you know, rollers in their hair. I think that's like a fun, kitschy thing. <laughs> um, some previous names of this franchise, because uh, they were not the Cleveland Indians until pretty deep into their history, relatively. It was about 15 years after the American League formed. Uh, they were originally the Cleveland Lakeshores. That's a little, little too much to say, I think. Yeah, but, that's tough. Um, the Cleveland Bluebirds is actually not bad. Right, uh, but you run into the Blue Jays, right? I mean, Yeah, like, that's true. But that's the where Cle- the Blues came from, when they were the Blues, were the, yeah. were the Bluebirds. Yeah, the uh, I Cleveland... Think, I think Cleveland Blues is pretty good. Yeah, it's not... I could see that. It kind of fits in with the rock and roll theme, it, Right, too. the music thing, it's obviously not purely rock and roll, but, like, yeah. that's... Yeah, I don't know. I like that. Yeah. Um, the Cleveland Broncos... Mm. No. Uh, and then for a long time, they were named after their best player. They were the Cleveland Naps. I don't right. think we're going back to Cleveland Naps. Although I did see a couple of people suggest that. After, yeah, I, uh, I saw it floated. I don't think that 
that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but that that was what prompted their name change was that he he had been retired, I believe. Yes, um, to, and, um, and that's where they settled on Indians at some point. But, yes, which I believe was after uh, Louis Sokolexis, I think was the idea. The, the people, I, I believe that's disputed, but that is yeah. definitely mentioned as a reason. Uh, yeah, who indeed was a player for the Cleveland Spiders, which was the National League team in right. Cleveland. Because the, essentially when the American League formed was right after the Spiders became a syndicate team and completely fell apart. I think they were a syndicate for the Browns. It's been a while since I've read like my 19th century baseball history. I think that would be something I would have done during quarantine, but really didn't. I've done nothing during quarantine. I haven't actually been quarantined, so <laughs> well, I've point. still been working full time. Great point. So, yeah. Um so I did want to end on a couple of quick uh kind of third half topics to replace wrestling. Um one of which is I saw Hamilton last night, uh which I have seen Hamilton. This would have been I saw it in the theater with the original cast and then I saw it multiple times after that, uh, with other casts. And uh, talking to you earlier today, you had saw the Washington production of that? Yeah, I saw it at the Kennedy Center. What did you think of it as a kind of a play, and kind of what do you also think of the cultural phenomenon? Uh, I mean, I find the cultural phenomenon exhausting, just like yes. people talking about it. I, I saw someone say, say this on Twitter, and I, I couldn't, and I'm sure they were not the first, but... Uh, I couldn't agree more with it, which is like, it's fine to like Hamilton. It's not fine to make it a personality trait. That's um, a good way to put it. And, and I, that's kind of where I am. I loved it. I, I thought it was, uh, I had not, I, so I should point out, like, I, I love musicals. Um, so I've definitely, like, I listened to Rent a lot before I saw it. I think I probably saw it, uh, I don't know, close to a decade into its in, into its run when it came to DC at some point. It had two of the original cast members, but um, I, I loved it. I love listening to it. I, I like musicals a lot in general. Um, I did not get caught up in, in Hamilton like before I saw it. I knew, obviously, it was impossible not to know about it, but um, I didn't like listen to the... the um, I'm blanking on the word. I didn't listen to any of the songs. Soundtrack. Soundtrack. Thank you. It's my brain left me. Um, but I didn't listen to the soundtrack beforehand. I had heard a few songs, but it didn't grab me. But then when I saw it, it it was. I mean, it was it was incredibly compelling, incredibly well done. Um, it was just like you know, listening to the soundtrack. I couldn't keep track of who everyone was, uh, and and like the the speed at which kind of it went uh, went through. But when you're there watching it. It, you know, it was just, it, I loved it. I would see it again in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I would, I would suggest that you, uh, seek out the Disney Plus presentation. I'm assuming at some point you're going to have to get Disney Plus for all the kids movies, right? Yeah, I think we'll get there at some point. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to watch it. Um, but it's not, it, I didn't feel the need to, to see it immediately having, you know, yeah. having gotten to experience it in theater. I, uh, it's a very well done film production of a stage show because those can be iffy and this is very well done and very well put together and very technically good um, there's several standout performers in the original cast that um, kind of the replacements weren't quite as good as 
One of them, ironically, is not Lin-Manuel Miranda. I did not think he was a particular standout of the original cast. Uh, Leslie Odom, David Diggs, Jonathan Groff, and Philippa Sue, I would say, would be the standout like acting performances and mm-hmm. singing performances for me. Um, especially David Diggs as Jefferson, more than... Um, more than Marquis de Lafayette, but uh, yeah, it is really good, and I would suggest doing it uh, quickly. Thirty seconds of reality trash television um, suggestions for people that are still at home. Craig, uh, Ninety Day Fiance, I think is is going. Uh, there's like multiple series of it going right now, and I I would recommend. It's just. Uh, desperation on tv and it's far more compelling than it than it deserves to be so we actually kept something to the time that was allotted for it which might be first in the history of this podcast so um for craig i am jared uh i don't know if jeffrey will be back next week if jeffrey is not back next week craig will probably be back and we will probably come up with some alternate format but uh hopefully this wasn't too bad uh thank you for listening and we'll be back next week Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.